Hope Church. So glad each and every one of you are here today. We're continuing our study in the book of Matthew. Uh, We're in Matthew chapter 4, if you brought your Bible with you or if you have it on your smartphone, uh, one of the Bible apps. Uh, So Matthew chapter 4, verses 12 through 25 uh, this morning. Again, a special welcome to everyone, especially those uh, visiting with us today. We're very glad uh, you're here with us. And so uh, let's read the passage uh, for this morning, and then we'll we'll go through it. So Matthew chapter 4. Let's begin in verse 12, and this is after the baptism and temptation of Jesus in the, um, in the wilderness. And so in verse 12 it says, Now when Jesus heard that John had been put in prison, he departed to Galilee, and leaving Nazareth, he came and dwelt in Capernaum, which is by the sea, in the regions of Zebulun and Naphtali, that it might be fulfilled which was spoken by Isaiah the prophet, saying, The land of Zebulun, the land of Naphtali, By the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people who sat in darkness have seen a great light. And upon those who sat in the region uh, and shadow of death, light has dawned. And from that time, Jesus began to preach and to say, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And Jesus, walking by the sea of Galilee, saw two brothers, Simon called Peter and Andrew his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And then he said, Follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. They immediately left their nets and followed him. And going on from there, he saw two brothers, James the son of Zebedee and John his brother, in the boat with Zebedee their father, mending their nets. He called them, and immediately they left the boat and their father and followed him. And Jesus went all around Galilee, teaching in the synagogues, preaching the gospel of the kingdom, and healing all kinds of sickness and all kinds of disease among the people. Then his fame went throughout all Syria, and they brought to him all sick people who were afflicted with various diseases and torments, and those who were demon-possessed, epileptics, and paralytics, and he healed them. Great multitudes followed him from Galilee and from Decapolis, Jerusalem, Judea, and beyond the Jordan. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your love for us uh, today, dear God. We thank you for your goodness to us, Father. We don't deserve it. Uh, We are sinful. Um, Each one of us has had run from you. And yet in your love, dear God, uh, you have pursued us and you have given us your son Jesus. And you have given us um, the opportunity to know you, to be saved, to be um, made as new creations in your sight. And so this morning, Lord, we pray as we look into your word that you would teach us, that you would instruct us from it, that we would... Uh, grab hold of every lesson in it. Help us to follow you and to to love you, to live for you, dear God, for you are worthy. Jesus, we praise you that you went to the cross for us and that you've risen from the dead and that there is life and abundant life in your name. And so we thank you this morning, dear Jesus, in your precious name. Amen. Okay, so let's break this down section by section. So we want to start back in verse 12 where it says, you know, when when Jesus heard that John had been taken into custody, he withdrew into Galilee. Um, and leaving Nazareth, he came and settled in Capernaum, which is by the sea, in the region of Zebulun and Naphtali. This was to fulfill what was spoken through Isaiah the prophet, the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, by way of the sea, beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. The people who were sitting in darkness saw a great light, and those who were sitting 
in the land and shadow of death, upon them a light dawned. Now, it's, an, it's important for us to understand the historical context of, the, of Jesus' public ministry. You know, one question that we have here is, you know, why did Jesus, um, you know, center his ministry in Galilee and not around Jerusalem at the beginning of his ministry? You know, Jerusalem is where the temple is. It's where all the religious leaders are, uh, you know, that are the most important, you know, people. It's where the power and influence is. So why didn't Jesus start his public ministry there? Why did he go, you know, 105 miles north of there on the other side of the Sea of Galilee and set up his ministry in that region? Um, if we can put the map up that we have here uh, today, let's go to the other, the other one. Um, and so this map shows you in the center of that lake, the Sea of Galilee, which is a, a pretty big lake. It's about 13 miles long. At its widest point, it's about eight miles wide. Um, the deepest parts are about 700 feet deep. Uh, so it's a big lake. Uh, there's a lot of fish in the lake. And so people are fishermen. That's what we see um, here later in the chapter uh, with Jesus reaching out to these fishermen and asking them to follow him. Um, but you'd have to go 105 miles south to get to Jerusalem from the northern part of the Sea of Galilee where Capernaum um, is. And this region of Galilee is what in the Old Testament was referred to as Naphtali and Zebulun, um, which were the places given to those tribes of Israel. Um, and it's interesting, as we read about that, um, in the Wycliffe Bible Encyclopedia, it says, Roads across Galilee from all directions brought commerce from Egypt, Arabia, and Syria. Fruit and olive orchards thrived on the hills, and grain and grass in the valleys. The Canaanites continued to dominate Galilee long after Joshua's invasion, back in the book of Genesis, Judah, Judges, excuse me, back in Judges. And in Solomon's time, Galilee had a mixed population, so that he felt he could give 20 of its cities to Hiram of Tyre without a great loss to Israel, 1 Kings chapter 9. After the Assyrian conquest, Galilee once again became predominantly Gentile. Thus, Isaiah called it Galilee of the nations. Now, at this time, when Herod was ruling over Israel, uh, many Jewish people did move into this area. And so it's a very mixed population of Jews and Gentiles. You have commerce flowing um, south from Egypt, um, east from Arabia, um, and north, northeast from Syria. And so this is all you know, coming together here um, with these different people groups. So again, when it, we ask the question, why here and not Jerusalem? I think we have a, a couple of reasons. One, John has already been thrown in prison, and so he needs a place where he can develop his disciples and grow them where his disciples aren't also, he or his disciples aren't also going to be immediately thrown into prison. Um, he's got to be able to have a place where he can develop them. We know John ends up being put in prison because he's left the wilderness where he's been doing his public ministry. And when he went back um, you know, to the seats of power, he confronted the Roman authority. He confronted you know, Herod there for taking um, his brother's wife to be his own wife. He says, you know, this is against God's laws and it's even against the Roman laws. You know this is a sin. You know this is wrong to do. And because of his um, political involvement, we should say, in the Roman affairs, he is thrown into prison. 
Um, so that's what happens to John the Baptist. So I think, we, again, we have two reasons. One, Jesus needed a place where he could you know, call disciples, make disciples, and not have them in the pressure cooker of Jerusalem um, so he can develop them. And he also needs a place that has many Gentiles because ultimately we know his plan is to reach both Jew and Gentile. And Gentile there just broadly means everybody who's not Jewish, just all the other nations, okay? Um, And so we know that God's plan has been from the beginning back to the promises of Abraham that through the seed of Abraham, all the families of the earth would be blessed, all the nations of the earth would be blessed, and therefore he needs a place where he can set up this ministry to to accomplish this. Um, And it's also interesting that as Matthew writes his gospel, we've seen very clearly Um, As his audience is largely Jewish, but he's writing to them in such a way to tone down their nationalism and to help them to see God's plan for the nations. Um, We see that most evident at the end of the book where he says, you know, gives Jesus a command to go into, you know, all the people groups and make disciples. But even at the beginning, when he gives the genealogy of Jesus in um, chapter one, he's sure to include those who were not Israelites. He's sure to include Rahab uh, from Jericho. He's, he's sure to include um, Ruth, the Moabite woman. And he's, you know, he's making a point about this. And then he emphasizes the wise men um, coming from the east to worship you know, Jesus um, in chapter 2. And so he's working to get this point across. And we see it again here in the second half of chapter 4, the emphasis on, of Matthew on those who are beginning to follow Jesus who are, who are not Israelites. And so we see kind of this um, uh, purpose in his writing. So this is where Jesus is. He's in the place, not where people think they have it all figured out. The, the religious leaders in Jerusalem think they have everything figured out. They think that they are right with God. They're doing everything the proper way. Jesus doesn't go there. He goes to the people who are going to agree with the prophet Isaiah that they are living in darkness. And he, you know, he's also fulfilling that prophecy that Isaiah gave in Isaiah chapter 9, verses 1 and 2, that the people in the land of Zebulun um, and the land of Naphtali, by the way of the sea, beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people who were sitting in darkness saw a great light. And those who were sitting in the land in shadow of death, upon them a light dawned. Now what we need to understand here is that we don't see anything going on at this time that the people are necessarily under any great famines. This is a fertile land. Economically, they're doing well, but I think they understand and they know that in a spiritual sense, they're living in darkness. They're not going to compare themselves to the Pharisees and the Sadducees, the religious leaders, and say, oh, we're as good as those people are. In their own estimation of themselves, they are sinners. They, they know that they live in darkness. Um, and so when this light comes, when Jesus comes, it's attractive to people. And so what is Jesus preaching? We see in verse 17, he says, From that time, Jesus began to preach and to say, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. So first thing is that Jesus is telling people to repent. You know, what does this mean? It means that they need to change their mind, to change 
their perspective, to, to stop thinking how they were thinking and now to think a different way. And, you know, how our thoughts are, our actions follow, right? Um, you know, our, where, where your mind is, where you think is true and right and good or bad, I mean, you're still making decisions based on that information. And so, you know, a lot of what Jesus' message is, is that both to the non-religious and to the religious, is that your way of life hasn't worked. It hasn't worked. And I think we're really going to see this in the next few chapters when we go through the Sermon on the Mount and Matthew 5 through 7. That Jesus is telling everybody, your way, the, the way that you think as human beings, is the proper way to handle life in terms of what's important, what you pursue, how to know God, how to handle conflict, how to handle your sexuality, how to handle you know, anything is messed up. And it doesn't work. It doesn't work well for you. It's not what's best for you. And I'm going to show you a better and more excellent way. That's what really what the Sermon on the Mount, I think, is about. Your way doesn't work. Let me show you a better way for life. Um, and so, you know, we need to, to think about that when he says, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Change your mind because you think a certain way about all your things in this world, but there's another kingdom, the kingdom of heaven. And it's better, it's higher, it's more valuable than the things on this earth. And you need to align yourselves with this new kingdom, with the kingdom of heaven, with the kingdom of God. You need to align yourselves with that. Because the kingdoms of this world don't do it for you. They don't meet, ultimately, your basic human needs of true purpose and true love. They don't do that for you. I think we can tr- preach the same message that Jesus has preached here. I think we can preach the same message today. What this world offers, even the best of what this world offers, is shallow and hollow compared to what is offered to us, the abundant life and the eternal life that's offered to us in Jesus Christ. But far too often, even those of us who claim, we love you, Jesus, we follow you, trade, make the bad trade. We trade, you know, we trade away what's fulfilling and whole, gives us you know, purpose and love, and we trade away that for things that ultimately don't fulfill us and that are hollow. A lot of times we find ourselves making the bad trade, and we need to hear Jesus say to us even this morning, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Meaning that it is imminent. It is coming. And again, it doesn't matter if the full fulfillment of the kingdom happens in your lifetime or not. It's still imminent. It is still at hand. It is still you know, a train that cannot be stopped. It is coming. So then, Jesus, in verse 18, as Jesus was walking by the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, who was called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And he said to them, Follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. Immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, 
in the boat with Zebedee, their father, mending their nets, and he called them. And immediately they left the boat and their father and followed him. I think that's one of those things that we can read and not, maybe not get the full power of it. You know, it's one of those things, it's almost for me as I'm reading and, I'm, and I know the Sermon on the Mount is coming in Matthew 5 through 7, I kind of get a little antsy because I want to hear the words of Jesus that he, that he says and I kind of want to get there. But what's here and here for us this morning is really important. Because when Jesus calls these four fishermen, he says, you know, come and follow me. He says a couple things that are important. Um, he says, come and follow me. You know, he says, follow me. And that's huge. What Jesus is asking for is an allegiance and a devotion to himself that is above all other and any other. And he's also, he's asking these guys to make a trade from fishing for fish to fishing for people. Now, Jesus uses this illustration of, I'm going to make you fishers of men because they're fishermen. You know, if they were like, you know, say they were authors, you know, he might have said, like, come and follow me and I'll, you know, I'll teach you to change the stories of men's lives. You know, it's like whatever their profession is, it doesn't really matter. The key thing is that he's going to teach them how to reach people for the kingdom. So there's a couple of things in this that I think that we have to be aware of. Is that Jesus, when he calls us, expects us to follow him. You know, Jesus had a clear expectation that when he said, follow me, that they would leave everything that they were doing and that they would go with him. That nothing else in life was as important as following Jesus. So what was less important than following Jesus for these guys. They left their business. They left their livelihood. Now, they're, when they're walking with Jesus, they're going to be on, on faith for God's provision. They're not guaranteed anything. Jesus doesn't say, and following me comes with this salary. He doesn't say, following me comes with these perks, these benefits. They actually know from what he's already, I think they already know, they've already encountered him before. You know, the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. They, they know that they've, they're entering into a difficult venture. And they're giving up business and family. They left their boats. They left their father. So they're giving, they're giving up their profession and their family. Now, those are two of the biggest things that you have that you can give up. You know, there's a cost here. There's also a cost here for, you know, and you read that the, the, the James and John are, are fishing with their father, Zebedee. There's a cost for Zebedee when Jesus tells James and John, come follow me. And I have to think here that also that Zebedee is a spiritual man. In this process. Because you don't see him pleading and saying, Sons, wait. What am I going to do without you? 
How am I going to run the business without you? I think we see some spirituality on, on his part as well. That they all know that this is a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity. That this is a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity to go and to be a disciple of Jesus, which means to walk with him day by day and to learn from him. To be, you know, he's the, he's the rabbi, he's the teacher, and they are the students. They are the disciples. Now, we, we also have to understand a little bit of the culture in this day. I mean, it was common that, um, you know, somebody who was considered a rabbi, somebody considered a teacher, um, you know, would ask, you know, a student would come to them and say, I want to follow you, or they would go to a student and say, you know, come and follow me. A lot of times they were, these were in the, you know, schools of the rabbis. And so the, the brightest of the brightest got picked. You know, the ones who had memorized the Torah. You know, these were the kids, these were the young, young men the young men who got picked to be with a particular rabbi. But here, you don't have Jesus going to the rabbinical schools. You don't have him going and finding the brightest of the bright, the sharpest of the sharp. You find him going along and finding just some hardworking dudes in their boats and saying, come and follow me. And so for these guys, this really is a once-in-a-lifetime sort of opportunity. Because here's the thing. They're understanding, yes, he is a teacher, yes, he's the rabbi, but there's also this idea of could he be the Messiah, the hope of Israel? And if your people have been waiting for the Messiah, generation after generation after generation, hoping to see the consolation of Israel, as Simeon says, um, in the book of Luke, if you're waiting for this your whole life, and then along comes one that you think he could be the one, it's actually only natural that you would throw down everything else, that you would quickly leave everything else, and to begin to follow this Jesus. Now, I think. We need to understand that when Jesus calls us today, that sometimes he does call you to leave everything else and to follow him and to go to a, you know, to change everything about your life. That sometimes that's the request of Jesus for you. He's going to change where you live, your vocation, everything. There's other times, though, where Jesus calls you and he calls you to follow him right where you are. And that might not seem as glamorous, but there's still a sacrifice and there's still a a difference in how you're living. And there's a priority of what you're about. And so we have to ask ourselves a question. Am I following Jesus in such a way that it's obvious that my life is centered around him and that I am most concerned with him and his purposes? And that's true no matter who you are or what your role is in the kingdom of heaven. Your role is in the church. Your role is in the kingdom of God. No matter what it is, is it obvious to myself and to the world, to everyone else, that Jesus is my highest priority. My life is centered around for him. And with that comes sacrifice. 
with that comes sacrifice. Because I don't think we can be left with a gospel that calls men and women to less than what Jesus called his first disciples to. That I don't think that Jesus, I don't think the new gospel of Jesus is come follow me just a little bit. Come sacrifice just a little bit. Come on in and it won't really cost you a thing. But I'm afraid that this is the gospel we preach oftentimes to people in our world today. Hey, become a believer in Jesus. Become a follower of Jesus and your life will be better. And a lot of times what we're saying is your life will be easier. In some ways this is true because when you're not doing the sins that are self-destructive, when you're not running yourself into a brick wall all the time, yes, life does become a little bit better and a little bit easier in those ways. But we also need to be careful that we are not preaching a gospel that does not have cost. Because our salvation certainly costs Jesus everything at the cross. But it also requires something of us. When Jesus says, come and follow me, he's not saying, you know, just believe in me so that you have your fire insurance, so that you don't go to hell. And then however else you want to live your life is fine by me. That is not the gospel of Jesus Christ. The gospel of Jesus Christ is that he expects those of us who say we love you and follow you to love him and follow him. And Jesus says, if you love me, keep my commandments. Which we're going to read in Matthew 5 through 7, what a lot of those are. If you love me, keep my commandments. He also tells us, though, that his ways are not burdensome, so don't misunderstand what I'm saying. He's not just like going to pile on you. It's actually a relief to live. What I'm trying to communicate, it is a relief from your worldly burdens, from my worldly burdens when I'm living for Jesus. But there also is a cost. I do have to give things up. I do have to give up sin that I enjoy. That's one. I do have to give up being the boss. That's also something I enjoy. Something I think each of us, if we're honest, enjoy. We want to be in control. We want to be the one making the decisions. We're okay with God's will and plan for our lives as long as that matched up with our ideas. We're not so okay with it if it doesn't match up with our ideas. So Jesus says, follow me. So the question this morning is, am I following Jesus Is that obvious to myself, to others around me? And he says, and I will make you fishers of men. So this is also an expectation of disciples that we're focused on reaching others, that we're we're others focused. Whatever your role in that is, you're others focused. He doesn't say, follow me and I will make you super spiritual, awesome people. With the emphasis on the disciples and their like growth and benefit. He says, follow me, and I'm going to help you help others. I'm going to make you fishers of men. So, the gospel of Jesus is focused on God and his kingdom, and is focused outward on other people. 
You know, we got a little camp. There's a little campaign goes around sometimes. That says I am second. That's cool. Really, it's just I'm third because it's God, others, ourselves. We don't even get to be second. We get to be third. God, others, ourselves. That's what Jesus ultimately wants from us. Now, what's cool about that is when you put God first, others second, yourself third, that maximizes your own spiritual growth and health. That absolutely maximizes your own spiritual growth and health. But when the agenda is first me, then God, then others, that minimizes your spiritual health and growth. Whenever you are the first object of your work and affections, you're going to get the least beneficial results. Because you become stagnant water. What comes into you stays and doesn't leave. You become a pool of stagnant water. So it's got to be God, others, ourselves is the order of things that we care deeply about. The spiritual lives, the physical lives of other people. So we see these two things. Jesus calls us to follow him, and Jesus calls us to reach others. And again, you don't have to go halfway around the world. It's great if you go halfway around the world, if that's what God calls you to do. But what about next door? What about next door? What about the people, in your, you know, your students, the people you see in your classes all the time, people you see at the gym, people you see in the, you know, where, where you go to eat, your places of work, um, in your neighborhoods, in your apartments, in your communities? Are we sharing Jesus with people in those places and giving ourselves, giving Jesus to them, giving ourselves to them? All right, verse 23. Jesus was going throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every kind of disease and every kind of sickness among the people. The news about him spread throughout all Syria, and they brought to him all who were ill, those suffering with various diseases and pains, demoniacs, epileptics, paralytics, and he healed them. Large crowds followed him from Galilee and the Decapolis and Jerusalem and Judea and from beyond the Jordan. So these crowds that are now beginning to follow Jesus, they're from Galilee, so that's local. Decapolis, which is the area south of the Sea of, of Galilee, you can see it there on the bottom right, Decapolis. Um, so you have from there. From Jerusalem, again, that's about 105 miles south. And, from, and then from uh, Judea, that's even further. You know, Jerusalem is in Judea, but I think he's saying even further than Jerusalem. Um, and then from beyond the Jordan River. And so the fame of Jesus is spreading like wildfire at this point. It's been pretty awesome to be alive and to witness these things. Um, you know, the crowds that are beginning to follow Jesus, they're obviously hungry. Um, I think they're hungry for two things. One is just physical help. 
you list some of the people that are, you know, who he's helping here. People with diseases, pains, epileptics, um, paralytics, people that are demon-possessed. Obviously, they need the help, and they need the truth. But I think the same thing is also true today. Um, That there are multitudes of people in our world who are waiting for someone to share truth and to share love with them. And there are multitudes of people in our nation that are ready and hungry for the truth and the love of God, you know, in their lives. Um, There's certainly people around the world ready and hungry, waiting for someone to tell them the good news, that's the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ. You know, all the benefits of believing in him and following him, of, of being a worshiper of Jesus, and how that does indeed change everything in our lives. People are, are in many places, are ready and open for this. And in, uh, sometimes it's in places that we don't even expect. You know, people in North Korea, people in Iran, people where there are very tight you know, grips on controlling the information people have access to, you know, suppressing the message of Jesus... But even in these places, people are desperately hungry for love and for the truth of the Lord Jesus Christ. Um, but we're hearing reports you know, from Mexico with the earthquakes there. People are open because they think, you know, man, my life could be short. You know, it's, everybody has, has an idea. You, know, you kind of like put it off. I think we all do this. We know we're mortal. We know that you know, there's a clock that's ticking that has your name on it and like, you know, you only have so many years on this earth, and we try not to think about that too much because that's, you know, depressing, sad, you know, sort of thing. But, you know, that you still kick the can down the road. That's a ways from now. You know, accidents happen. Um, people get diseases, but it's easy to say, well, that won't happen to me. But when they have natural disasters, earthquakes and things like that, where the ground's literally shaking underneath you, you realize how feeble. Um, and how vulnerable you are in this world. And then people start to think about eternity and what comes next. But what we want to tell people, too, is, you know, Jesus, yes, it's about eternity, but it's also about here and now and today and the burdens that can be taken off your life if you'll follow Jesus and follow his ways. How much better, yes, indeed, your life is better. And it does come with some sacrifice. You give some things up. And you become more focused on others and less focused on yourself. Okay, yes, there's, there's a cost. Yes, there's sacrifice when we follow Jesus fully. But he is utterly and totally worth it. The same thing that was true, you know, people need to see it the same way today that these disciples, these first, you know, four disciples... When Jesus called them from their boats and said, come follow me, you know, we need to have that same perspective today. It's a once in a lifetime opportunity. When Jesus says, come follow me, because you don't know you're guaranteed tomorrow. For all you know, this is your once in a lifetime opportunity. Come and follow me. And so may we be about this. Um, May we believe the truth that there are many people who are hungry 
to know more about our Savior and our King that needs somebody to tell them, and may we be bold to share him you know, with others. I know many of you, and I'm thankful, many of you are attempting to do this in your, your lives and your, your places of work and classes and school, but let's be faithful and let's not give up on that. God has called us you know, to do that. Um, and sometimes the way in, the door in, is by caring about the physical with people. You know, when people have something going on in their life, how can I pray for you? You know, when they have a sick family member, how can I pray for you? When they're going through a rough time, how can I pray for you? You think doors are being opened in, you know, in Oaxaca, Mexico, where the church in Rio Blanco is going down, and they're setting up places to feed people. You think that provides an, op- an open door and an opportunity? You know, and we see this. We need to not misunderstand this. It's obviously in the ministry of Jesus that he, he, the, the spiritual is the priority. Even the teaching is mentioned first. That the, he's teaching, he's preaching, that these things are in the order of priority. In the ministry of D- Jesus, the teaching and pre- preaching are his priority. Because the spiritual is the everlasting. The physical is temporary. But he is definitely concerned about people's physical well-being you know, he's not just healing the sick to prove who he is. Yes, it's part of proving who he is, but it's also because of his deep care for human beings. Because he loves us, and he seeks to take care you know, of people. And so that was part of his ministry was to feed people. Part of his ministry was to heal people, um, to free people from their oppressions and their possessions, being demon-possessed. You know, but sometimes from their material possessions that they were slaves to. But he was freeing people. So he cares deeply about the physical and most of all about the spiritual in people's lives. And so, you know, we are just instructed in the scriptures, you know, to follow Jesus means we can follow him in these ways as well. And so care for others, and caring for others will always give you an opportunity. Even if it's just caring enough to listen to another person. If you care enough to listen to others, you will have opportunities to share the good news of Jesus with others. But if you're so focused on yourself and what you have to do, and you're so busy and all this, and you're so much more important than everybody else's, you know, your drama is so much more important than everybody else's stuff, you won't have many opportunities. You're going to be focused on yourself. Other focused people are loaded with opportunities. Self-focused people aren't. Hey, we're all living, you know, we're all, we're all living not that different lives, so what's the difference? Perspective, attitude. You know, so be focused on God, be focused on others, and God will build you up. Um, let, leave that to him. And so let's pray. Heavenly Father, we love you and praise you. We thank you for your goodness to us. We thank you, Jesus, that you came to seek and to save those of us who are lost, and Lord, certainly myself. And that I thank you, Lord, that despite everything about me, you love me, dear God. Help me to follow you more fully. And help us, Lord, to follow you, to be passionate about you when we would all hear your voice that says, come, follow me, and that we would hear Jesus 
We would follow you for our whole lives. Lord, if any of us this morning could say, well, I was following you more closely or more devotedly at this past time in my life, Lord, that you would forgive us and heal us and set us aright and anew with you this morning. There are any here, Lord, that haven't followed you yet, who haven't confessed their sins to you and asked for your salvation. Lord, we pray that today will be their day of salvation. They believe in you, dear Jesus. And for Lord, for those who are being faithful and following you this day, Lord, we pray that they would not be proud or prideful, but in humility give thanks and ask for your help to continue on in the life you've asked us to live. Lord, I pray that even now you'd be preparing us and our church to hear your voice and your messages and the coming messages um, as we go through the Sermon on the Mount, that you would speak clearly to us in the coming weeks. We'd see clearly your expectations of us and that it is possible to live in a way that pleases you in this world by being obedient to you and being filled with the Holy Spirit. And so we ask it, Jesus, in your precious name. Amen.